welcome back to my podcast. My name is Thistle, and this is Thistle in the Weeds. Do I have an episode for you this week, my friends? It is the quintessential, perfect example of how my brain works. Are you ready? (laughs) I don't think you are. (laughs) But I'm going to get into it anyway. Okay, here we go. So I had just finished editing the episode that went up on December 5th. And... That episode not only came out a week late, it came out a week and a day late. And I was a little disappointed in myself. I talked to my husband about it a little bit and he said, no one is expecting you. No one is demanding these episodes be up every single Monday morning. No one. So it's okay to give yourself a little bit of a break. And while that's very true... There isn't anyone out there that is hammering me to have these up on Monday other than myself. I don't want this hobby to fall into the same category as my other hobbies where I give myself slack and then I give myself a little more slack and then I give myself a little more slack to the point where I'm not doing it anymore. I really enjoy doing this. I love it. I don't know if you all love it. I'm hoping that if you've gotten this far into my podcast that you're at least moderately enjoying what you're hearing, but it basically became my plan at that point that I need to get ahead of the game again. When I first started uploading my episodes for the podcast, I was a few weeks ahead of the game. Like I had stuff already pre-recorded, already pre-edited, just scheduled and waiting So I didn't feel so much pressure to record and have things edited by Sunday night so that they could be uploaded on Monday. The funny part is that I'm currently recording this at 8.41 on Sunday night. (laughs) This is not going to be the episode that goes up tomorrow, but I just finished editing the episode that will get posted tomorrow. Which is, again, one of the reasons why I want to get ahead of the game. So I started coming up with a plan of episodes that I wanted to have finished, topics that I wanted to talk about. I just kind of wanted to get a game plan going so that I could start getting myself back into the groove, being maybe one or two weeks ahead of schedule so that if something would happen out of my control that I needed to, you know, be away for a week, that there would still be an episode that would come out. So I started thinking about things that might be coming up and it of course occurred to me like Christmas is coming. Why don't I do an episode similar to my Halloween episode where we talk about Christmas? But I'm not really sure that I want to talk about the origins of Christmas or where Christmas traditions come from because Christmas is one of the like it it was one thing to talk about Halloween because I feel like People who really like Halloween are very accepting and understanding of its origins. They realize that it's not one place or the other. It's kind of an amalgamation. 
And for the most part, I would say we just kind of accept all of that. However, Christmas is an incredibly religious holiday. And as soon as you start telling religious people that the thing that they believe is religious is not, or you start challenging their religion in some way, not even really meaning to, they tend to get very standoffish is probably the nicest way of putting it, which is fine. I'm just not here to make enemies, really. So I didn't really want to talk about the origins of Christmas. So I started thinking, well, what about if there's something unusual or some grand, you know, happenstance that coincidentally occurred on Christmas that I could talk about? So I did a search on Google of weird things that have happened on Christmas Day. And almost every single article talked very specifically about celebrities that were either born or died on Christmas Day. And while I'm very sorry for Dean Martin, and I'm very sorry for his family that was left behind after he passed, I don't think that that's necessarily the most exciting thing to talk about on my podcast. The fact that he died on Christmas Day, which he did. I'm sorry. Then I ended up finding an article on grunge.com and it talked about a bit more interesting things. Like it talked about the truce on Christmas Day that happened during World War I. Um, it talked about the Haley Comet being sighted after uh, Haley had passed away, but his prediction ended up coming true that it would come back around and it was spotted in Germany on Christmas Day. Not in Germany. Someone in Germany spotted it on Christmas Day. Um, so there were just a, a cool, it was just a list of cool things that have happened. I was like, oh, I could pick a couple of things out of this and, and that would be super fun. One of the things listed was titled The First Successful Ovariotomy. And if you are not aware, an ovariotomy in general terms just means the removal of an ovary. And most of the time we're removing an ovary because it's cystic or because there is a tumor or something like that. And really removing the ovary is because we're trying to remove something else. And it's just easier to remove the entire ovary rather than try to remove the tumor that has grown on top of the ovary. And I'm reading this, uh, it was a, a short little like three paragraph snippet about this doctor named Ephraim McDowell, who is known in quotes as the father of the ovariotomy and how he performed the first one on Christmas Day. And I will tell you a little bit about that, but there is a, <laughs> there's a sentence at the end of the article that is the reason that this whole episode exists. So let me first back up just a tiny bit. I'll tell you the whole story about Dr. McDowell and his ovariotomy, and then we will continue down my rabbit hole with the last sentence that came from the Grunge article. So the story is this. On December 13th, 1809, Dr. Ephraim McDowell, who was living in Danville, Kentucky, was called to go visit a woman named Jane Todd Crawford, 
who lived about 60 miles away. She had originally been diagnosed as pregnant, potentially with twins, but she had gone well past her delivery date and was in some considerable pain. So Dr. McDowell makes the 60-mile trip on horseback out to see her. He examines her, of course, without any of the modern conveniences that we have now, MRI, CT, those kinds of things, ultrasound. And just by palpating or touching her abdominal area, he was able to diagnose her with a tumor. And the tumor, he believed, was pretty large. I mean, she was like visually appeared to be pregnant. So we have to know that this tumor is pretty big. He, and it's very specific in a lot of the places that I have been reading about this, it's everybody is very specific in the fact that he was absolutely honest with Mrs. Crawford, telling her that if we don't get this taken care of, it could end up being life-threatening, the pain is only going to get worse, but the only way that we can take care of this would be by removing it And that surgery has not only never been successful, it's never been done. And Mrs. Crawford is willing and able to go through this experimental surgery. So Mrs. Crawford makes the 60-mile trip to Danville, Kentucky, again on horseback, to go to Dr. McDowell's house where he will perform the surgery. And there is actually a quote that I want to read from uh, one of the other places that I researched this information. I went crazy, but I'll get into that in a minute. The quote is, She traveled on horseback, the only mode of locomotion in those days, to the home of Dr. McDowell 60 miles away. So great was the weight of the tumor resting upon the pommel of the saddle that a large contusion was formed on the skin. So this woman had to rest basically her abdomen full of this tumor on the front like hump part of the saddle. I don't know if it would have been like a Western saddle at that point. So I don't know if it would have had a horn. But regardless, going through that 60 mile trek on horseback left a giant bruise on her stomach. So Mrs. Crawford arrives at Dr. McDowell's house um, and basically his surgery room is just a room in his house with a bed in it. This is 1809. Like He doesn't have a whole bunch of fancy stuff in his house. He ends up performing the surgery, as I mentioned earlier, on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1809. So he makes a nine-inch incision, approximately, into Mrs. Crawford's left side. He's able to locate the tumor pretty easily um, and the fallopian tube associated with that ovary. He ends up tying a ligature around the fallopian tube, basically just to cut off blood supply to the ovary and the tumor. Then he proceeds to cut open the tumor because there really wasn't a way for him to remove the entire tumor whole as it was. It was just far too large. So he cut into the tumor and drained the tumor. And the substance that came out of the tumor, he describes as dirty and jelly-like. So he ends up getting all of the substance that's inside the tumor out. He weighs it 15 pounds. 
Then he proceeds to cut out the sack of the tumor. So the rest of the tumor and the ovary, seven and a half pounds. So we're talking a 22 and a half pound tumor that had been inside this woman. Then he tips her on her left side. Once he had everything removed, he tips her onto her left side to help drain any fluids or any excess blood that had been like floating around in her abdominal cavity. Once it's sufficiently drained, he stitches her up, making sure to leave the end of the fallopian tube hanging out of her incision. Now, I don't know. I, I mean, I can kind of guess as to why. My first guess is that he didn't want to like undo the ligature and just allow her to be bleeding internally through her fallopian tube. That's my guess. I don't know for sure. I also don't know if once it healed, they stuffed it back in. <laughs> I don't know if she just like went the rest of her life with part of her fallopian tube sticking out of her side, but they stitched her closed except for this small part where they had the fallopian tube hanging out. The icing on the cake here is that they did this surgery without antiseptics and without anesthetics. She was awake and aware and felt the entire thing. That is nuts. That is absolutely nuts to me. But the surgery was considered a success. Um, they had Mrs. Crawford stay at uh, Dr. McDowell's house to ensure that she was healing properly. Five days after the surgery, Dr. McDowell goes in to check on her, make sure she's doing okay, and she's up making her bed. 25 days after the surgery, she is still perfectly healthy and goes home, and she ends up living an additional 32 years. Now, she was 47 when she had this surgery performed, so she made it almost into her 80s, which is pretty great <laughs> given the, the time frame in which she lived. Um, so that would be considered the first ovariotomy. Now, Dr. McDowell didn't really report that this had happened. Um, and also, in terms of stating that it was the first ovariotomy, really what we're saying is that it's the first documented ovariotomy. There are a few cases um, happening back as early as the 1700s where it's believed that an ovariotomy was performed and it was successful, but it was never documented. So we don't really know for sure. So this would have been the first documented uh, successful ovariotomy. But Dr. McDowell didn't really feel that the success was due to his intelligence and skill alone. He thought a lot of it might have been due to luck. So he didn't report on it right away. He actually ended up performing two other ovariotomies. And it was only after those two were successful that he sent in a report to um, his alma mater, which I believe was a university in Edinburgh, Scotland, that uh, all three of these ovariotomies had been successful. And of course, you know, a lot of people ended up using these ovariotomies in like afterward. 
there were some people who kind of believe that maybe Dr. McDowell is taking a little too much of the credit on his own because he did study under a couple of doctors who believed and had been anxious to kind of push for ovariotomies to be done, to be tried. But there's the general consensus is kind of that Dr. McDowell, because he lived out in the country and he really didn't have a lot of stringent requirements placed on him because he lived out in the country, he wasn't practicing in a hospital or a university, that he kind of had a bit more freedom to do experimental surgeries like that. And so that's kind of what afforded him to be, I don't be, be able to have the first successful ovariotomy. But back to the grunge article. The sentence that kind of struck me and the reason that we ended up down this rabbit hole, the very last sentence in the very last paragraph of this grunge article states, by 1872, 42 years after McDowell's death, ovariotomies became, quote, the fashionable treatment of menstrual madness, neurasthenia, nymphomania, masturbation, and all cases of insanity, end quote. I mean, first of all, if you're a woman listening to this, if you are a woman who has any sort of feminism resting in your bosom the way that I do, this probably at least bothers you. <laughs> One of the things that I absolutely hate hearing about, I, I really love medicine. I really love early medicine, like 1800s medicine, learning about the way that they just kind of experimented and hoped for the best. And sometimes it was a complete disaster. It's very interesting to me. One of the things I hate is how terribly, I mean, women are still not treated altogether fairly, in my opinion, even in the 2020s, even right now. But in the 1800s, the idea that what we'll do for you, since you're acting a little nuts, is castrate you. That will cure you. What we really need to make you less crazy is for you to not be female. We will take away your gonads and then you'll be normal. Fuck that. Absolutely fuck that. <laughs> Makes me angry. But I needed to know, first of all, I needed to know where that sentence came from because it like, to me, you don't just stick that into a, a blurb about the first successful ovariotomy without having seen it somewhere. And I realize that grunge articles are probably not super heavily researched, but I am, like, dollars to donuts. That had to come out of somewhere where this person was like, oh, yeah, I'm sticking that in there. So... I decided to search the internet for the place that that sentence came from. Because it's a quote. Like, it must be from something directly. So I searched and I searched and I searched. And I ended up finding some really amazing things. So the first thing that I found was that within the article, there was uh, 
mention of the embryo project encyclopedia. And so I was able to follow the link to that and discovered that it was an article about Dr. Ephraim McDowell through the Arizona State University. And it was a much longer explanation of, you know, his work and including his ovariotomies and other things that had to do with gynecology um, and abdominal surgeries in general. So that was pretty interesting. Then I was able to track down some books that had actually been scanned and digitized that were written in the late 1800s, one of which was actually written by Dr. McDowell's granddaughter. Um, so I was able to, you know, learn a bit more about him. That, <laughs> if you have a chance, so I, I'm going to tell you right now, the links for everything that I found, all of the research that I did for this episode, I'm going to put up on my coffee page because if you get a chance to read the the basically i i don't it's just pure utter praise at the very end of this one book that is about Ephraim McDowell and the number of times that they call him a hero in this like four pages of information is astonishing i had to read it out loud to my husband it was so beautiful. <laughs> so I will leave a link to everything that I found um, so that you can read it for yourself if you want to because, wow, it's it's pretty incredible. But so I ended up finding these two books. One of the books was actually a really well-written biography or memoir of Dr. McDowell. It even had pictures in it, not just of him, but pictures of the house that he lived in, of the room where the surgery supposedly took place. There was like a drawing that was done based off of the account of one of the other people that had been in the room because he did have what probably equated to like a physician's assistant and a nurse in the room with him who were able to essentially testify that, you know, he had performed this surgery. But that book is, is really, really well done. I also ended up finding some, I don't know what they would have been, articles or papers that were written um, in the early 1900s that were about the history of ovariotomy. And at that point, the history of the ovariotomy would have been over 100 years. And it's still, I mean, one of the articles that I read was from 1934 so that's 110 years from today so the ovariotomy is a very interesting especially how it has evolved over time it's very interesting to read these articles so again I will link everything it will all be there for you but after hours of searching over the course of like three days I finally stumbled across the article that had that sentence in it. And it is, a, it is a PubMed paper. So this is published on the NIH website, the National Institute for Health, NIH.gov. This is a website that I used while I was at university to look at DNA sequences because the human genome sequence information is housed on the NIH website. So this is legitimate, right? 
So this paper that was written by John Studd is titled Ovariotomy for Menstrual Madness and Premenstrual Syndrome, 19th Century History and Lessons for the Current Practice. Within this article, specifically within the abstract of this article, is this sentence. The ovariotomy, the removal of normal ovaries, known as Beatty's operation, began in 1872 and became the fashionable treatment of menstrual madness, neurasthenia, nymphomania, masturbation, and all cases of insanity. There it is. I found it. Now, one of the things that I was confused about was that it's known as the Beatty's operation. So what does that mean? Well, I ended up researching it, and over time, different people kind of changed how we do ovariotomies. And one of the big players in those changes was a doctor named Robert Beatty. And he invented what he called the normal ovariotomy. And this was the removal of a quote-unquote normal ovary to treat these other symptoms that they were ex- that a, a woman was experiencing basically stress anxiety <laughs> pms anything like that pmdd and what this paper ends up talking about is that while the removal of ovaries was a bit overkill we don't need to castrate women in order to help them through these issues Basically, they were kind of on the right path because the way that we end up treating PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, is by suppressing ovulation. So we need to change the hormones that are interacting in our bodies in order to make sure that ovulation doesn't happen. And that will help us through these times where like our hormones really are just kind of making us feel like we're losing it. Another article that I ended up finding, which was uh, also very interesting, and again, talked about Robert Beatty and his normal ovariotomies, is that, first of all, even though Dr. Robert Beatty invented what he called normal ovariotomies, what they are looking into in this other article, the second article that I'm talking about, is the idea that those ovaries may not have been normal, really. They may have actually been cystic. And if they are cystic, then that could actually help explain some of the symptoms that the women were feeling as well because there is a particular type of encephalitis known as anti-N-methyl-D aspartate receptor encephalitis or anti-NMDAR encephalitis and this particular type of encephalitis is actually difficult to diagnose because the symptoms actually mimic a non-epileptic seizure and so the best way to tell the difference is actually to screen the ovaries for masses and cysts because if they are presenting these symptoms that are both present with anti-NMDAR encephalitis and also with non-epileptic seizures and they also have cystic ovaries you actually have encephalitis and not these non-epileptic seizures so that was really interesting to me 
all of this is really interesting to me. And I'm sure it's probably more fascinating to me than most of you listening. But here's where it gets really great. I promise we're very close to the end of this rabbit hole. So like I said, I had found that sentence. The whole 42 years after McDowell's death, ovariotomies became the fashionable treatment, etc., etc., in the grunge article and spent hours. I'm not kidding you. Hours. I even copied that entire sentence, the by 1872, 42 years after McDowell's death, all the way to all cases of insanity and pasted it in Google and got zero results. So I had to start tapering the research. I had to start tapering how I was searching for any particular articles and then finally stumbled upon that article by John Studd. But if you were listening closely, I also told you Within the Grunge article, I had seen something for the Embryo Project Encyclopedia, and I followed the link to an Arizona State University article. So there were links embedded in this blurb on Grunge. And as I was going back to each one of these websites so that I could copy the link, so that I could put all of my research into my coffee page, I discovered that that sentence, starting with by 1872, that little portion by 1872, was a link. I tapped on that link and it took me directly to the John Studd paper, where the sentence was taken from. (laughs) This happens to me all the time. My brain just says, okay, I need to go and find this piece of information. How am I going to do that? And it's as if my brain says, I have to start from scratch. There is clearly no other way than if I start from scratch and I go to Google and I type this thing in, And oftentimes the answer is very close by and I'm like, you know what, I would rather go way out on the weeds (laughs) and then circle back around and find my way to the answer. Now I will say, if I would have clicked on that link, there's a chance that I might not have found the two digitized books from the 1800s that I found. I wouldn't have found the other scientific paper that had been written about the anti-NM DRA, encephalitis, like a lot of that information I may never have found. And that probably would have made me sad because I was, let me tell you, I was like, I was so into doing this research that at night when I go to bed, I get into bed, I put my phone away, I have my watch on because I always do a 10 minute meditation as I'm curled up in bed with the lights off I do the meditation I take my watch off I go to sleep and when I was researching this article I was with my phone in my bed with the lights off after I did my meditation still looking stuff up I was that obsessed with it for like a good solid week I was obsessed (sighs) 
Anybody out there find this relatable? <laughs> uh, anyway, it was really interesting. Some of the other things uh, that were on the Grunge article are also really interesting. Like I said, if you've never heard about the truce of Christmas uh, in World War One, it was the first Christmas of World War One, and um, the Western Front basically, it wasn't the entire Western Front, but a lot of the Western Front just ceased fire um some in some places they ended up sharing snacks and things and there are reports of football games happening um and by football i mean soccer and then also you know the Haley comet thing was in there there was also a little blurb about how gorbachev resigned on christmas day in 1991 which was the basically the very end of the soviet union I will say there was a part of me that kind of wanted to talk about that, but that also is, that information is also kind of linked in with my Chernobyl talk whenever I get around to recording that, because that's going to be at least a two-parter. There's going to be a lot of information there. So hopefully that will be soon, but not today. So anyway, that's some interesting information about something that happened on Christmas, the first of Ariotomies. Again, I will leave all of my information on all of the research that I did on my coffee page. You can find that at ko-fi.com slash art by thistle. Um, I'm again going to try and update there more regularly. I would really like to have a set day that I'm uploading artwork there and then a set day that I'm uploading the information that will be associated with the podcast that comes out that week um so yeah you'll have to go to my coffee page if you want to find more information you're always welcome to communicate with me with you know questions or comments or anything like that uh through email which is artbythistle at gmail.com and yeah I think that's gonna do it for me for this week so hope you all i don't know when this episode is airing if it's very close to christmas then i hope you have a wonderful christmas if you celebrate i hope those of you who celebrate any other wintry holidays are also having a decent time thank you so much for listening be kind to each other don't be a dick bye